focus on your performance, not on the result. The result will be what your performance outcome will be. Don't think in advance about the possible negative outcomes. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations, and communities. Coffee Potters, you're going to love our guest on today's episode. We've got the CEO of Robo Race, the world's first competition for human and artificial intelligence racing, making autonomous technology exciting and inspirational for a new generation of spectators. I'm talking about Lucas Degrassi. Lucas is also a racing driver who's competed in Formula One, Formula E and World Endurance Championships. And in fact, he's the current World Formula E champion. He's now bringing his business experience and extensive knowledge of racing to Robo Race helping grow it into an established competition and cooperation of human and artificial intelligence. We were fortunate enough uh, to meet alongside the Energy Disruptors Unite Forum I was running in Calgary recently. I think you'll be fascinated to hear about the technology that Lucas and his team at Robo Race are pioneering, but also hear from this world champion about what it takes to be at the top of your game, uh, to sustain performance at that level, to operate in those low margin for error situations. It's a fantastic chat. Without further ado, here's Lucas. Well, Lucas, I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for making the time to join us on Coffee Pods. My pleasure, Holly. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure for me to be here. I want to kick off by getting an understanding of how your journey into Formula One began. I gather it had something to do with your uncle running a go-kart store? I am Brazilian. I was born in Sao Paulo and uh, I grew up watching uh, racing, especially Ayrton Senna, which was the most iconic sportsman uh, of Brazil of all times. Uh, he's uh, still an idol uh, everywhere and became like a, uh, like a legend. Uh, and uh, when he died, I was nine years old. He died in an accident in Italy, uh, racing Formula One. And uh, it was such a commotion in Brazil. There was such, uh, the, the, the country stopped for three days. It was like national holiday. That for me, that when I was, I mean, I was nine and that was so, uh, it was such an impact. Uh, that I saw that motorsport was not only motorsport, they actually had uh, influence in people's lives. Um, and uh, Ayrton Senna was a, run a charity and he was doing a lot of good for the country. So I wanted to become a driver. Yeah. Uh, so at that age of nine, I was already like experimenting go-karts with my uncle. But at that, at that day, I said, okay, I want to be a pro driver. And then my journey continued. I won championships in Brazil in go-kart and... Uh, yeah, some championships in Europe as well. And then when I was, then I jumped into cars, then I was uh, Formula 3 world champion, then Formula 2 uh, vice world champion, and then I went to F1 in 2010. Then from F1, I went to drive uh, hybrid cars in endurance races uh, like Daytona, like Sebring, like Le Mans. And then from there, 
driving these hybrid cars. Then I switched to electric in 2015 in Formula E and I won the world championship uh, last year. And now I'm involved in uh, autonomous cars too. So I'm very lucky to have uh, seen this transition in, within 10 years of my career uh, from fully combustion race cars to fully autonomous electric ones and uh, being able to drive these dream cars and being able to have, a, for me, a dream, uh, a dream life. So I'm very lucky. Okay, you make that all sound very straightforward when you talk about the progression uh, from one stage of your career to another. There's an enormous amount involved in that. Tell me, what does it take to be a Formula One driver, let alone one at the top of their game? It's, it's a bit like every sport. Like imagine if you have a draft on the NFL or something like that. You start when you're young and have a lot of kids doing go-karts, then you have to win the local championship to go to the national championship. Then you need to win the nationals to go to race in international ones and then you have to win international go-kart championships to go to Formula 3 then you have to win in Formula 3 to go to Formula 2 then you have to win in Formula 2 to go to Formula 1 mm -hmm. and the difference between let's say a traditional sport like a baseball or American football or anything is that it's very expensive motorsport mm -hmm. you have to, to have someone to back you up a team in Formula 3 uh, costs a million dollar a year to run a, a, a professional program in Formula 3 2 million in Formula 2 and you do a couple of years of each uh, and then you have to have someone to back you up or have a sponsor or something yeah. so it's a lot of pressure because every year you have to deliver so that sponsor continues and you can move on so I had to deal with a hell of a lot of, a lot of pressure in my life but also help, helps to shape you up and to prepare you for the next level I've been very lucky to, to, to also to choose the right teams you need the right car and uh, to win in motorsport, everybody sees it as a one man show, mm. but actually the team makes a huge difference. If you don't have the right car, the right team, the right engineers, you're not going to win. So this is as, as important as being inside the car driving. I want to ask you about pressure. Uh, you've dealt with and operated under an extraordinary amount of pressure over the course of your career. What advice do you have for people in terms of being able to perform, control themselves, execute under under stress or under pressure? In, in motorsport, pressure is, uh, I think, is the key factor, how you handle it. That's a, an excellent question because in motorsport, you can, have, you can do everything right the whole year and in a tenth of a second, if you do the wrong decision or if you lose your concentration, you crash and then it's all over. It's not that, uh, for example, like tennis, you lose a point, you can come back. In motorsport, if you lose a corner, your race is done and maybe your championship is done. Mm -hmm. And maybe your career is done because that year was a key year for you. So it's uh, super important uh, uh, to deal with pressure. The way I, 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 didn't do, I didn't do very well with pressure at the beginning, I think and I was trained during many, many years of experience to try to cope with it. And uh, I think the key moment for me, the click about handing pressure was to focus on my performance not on the result mm. so i just sit in the car and say okay let's do the best you can the outcome will depend on a lot of other factors some of them are not under your control if the car breaks down if the pit stop the mechanic misses a wheel so this created anxiety mm. in your head the day before but if you think about just focusing on yourself and your performance have done the best preparation possible, 
have to, um, um, let's say, um, commit to everything you could to arrive to that moment the best way, the best, the best way possible, mm -hmm. then it's done. Then I think you relax and say, okay, now let's have fun and, and drive. The other thing you mentioned before was the importance of team. Uh, you've been very fortunate to be able to work with some incredible teams over the course of your uh, Formula One career to date, but you've also made really conscious choices around the brand association and the people that you wanted to work with. Tell me, tell me about that element. How important are the people and how have you made choices as to who you want to work with? That, that's a difficult one because you never know uh, uh, how the team is going to be the year after. But uh, in the end, it's a bit of planning, understanding the long-term strategy of each brand and uh, try to be associated with the best people. So like a company, you can see if the, even if the company has a great past, but the people there are not good enough, mm. they will not go anywhere. So past result doesn't mean that it's going to have future performance. Mm -hmm. So you try to understand the, the, if the team had the result because of the people or they were lucky. And then you just try to make a decision. But sometimes you are forced to go to a team that is not so good. And then you have to work to make that team good. So that the team, the, the, having the good team around you is essential for motorsport. Yeah, I can bet. I mean, we continue to marvel at those pit stop moments. It blows my mind how much can get done in a matter of seconds and how important it is that everyone comes together in exactly the right way in a in a moment of team harmony to execute perfectly and get you out on the course with that fraction of a second advantage. And it's all about risk and return. You can get a 0.1 second advantage or you can, if the wheel doesn't fit properly, you can lose 10 seconds. It's also a matter of risk and reward. Uh, and practice the mechanics they need to practice they need to practice it over and over and over some people in the teams are specialized just for pit stop i mean we have about 100 people in the team working so it's a lot of it's a lot of people to uh you have the, the each area very segmented have very specific engineers uh, in formula e with electric cars we have a lot of energy management strategy mm. pit stop it's a it's, it's super complex Lucas, tell me about your pathway into electric racing, uh, electric car racing. Am I right in saying that you were a little bit sceptical at the start that they wouldn't be that exciting a car to drive? I had uh, doubt about the public acceptance because motorsport fans, they are super old-fashioned. The acceptance has been higher than expected, uh, has been uh, quicker than expected, including a new generation of fans. So not necessarily people who like motorsport, they like electric motorsport, they might have another incentive like, uh, like sustainability and then they like electric motorsport because it's actually doing something good for the planet. Mm. So driving itself, when you're driving at the level that we drive, which is tens, uh, maybe a tenth of a second or a few hundreds of a second lap by lap difference, there is very little difference between driving a combustion car or an electric car. Even the noise, you don't pay attention to the noise. Mm. When you're driving a formula car, which is like with an open wheel, with uh, your helmet outside, the air noise, because you're going so fast, is even louder than the engine. So that, that's not, people always ask me about noise and noise here and noise there. The, the, the te technique to go fast in a combustion car and electric car, they're very similar. I would say that a good driver in a combustion car will be a good driver in an electric car. Motorsport tends to lead the industry, tends to lead the automotive industry. So a lot of technologies that were developed in the car today uh, that are basically developed in racing before because of the high performance requirements that racing had. So when I understood that the electric cars were going to be the future of 
mobility. So the manufacturers would go electric. My decision as a driver was, yeah, electric cars make sense. The industry is going to go to that direction because they have to. So an electric motorsport series makes a lot of sense. So let's start driving electric cars because at the time I was driving hybrid cars. For me, hybrid cars, of course, make sense too, but it was a transition effect to fully electric. I said, okay, then this championship Formula E makes a lot of sense. So I was actually the first one to join Formula E and I helped it to develop from the beginning. Year by year, the acceptance of Formula E just grows and uh, it, it now has more manufacturers involved with Formula E than any other manufacturer and than any other championship on earth. Formula E is basically challenging people's perception on electric cars. Yeah. Uh, people' perception on electric cars were like Prius or something, which mm-hmm. was uh, yeah. for grandmothers. Yeah. Even before Tesla came along with uh, with, with good cars and uh, with Formula E, the perception was to make sure that people understand that electric cars are sexy, they are fast, they have enough range, they have enough power. So Formula E was very good in changing has been very good on changing people's perception of electric cars mm-hmm. and also developing the technology, especially battery and, well, the drivetrain technology side of, of things. And then the next step is uh, the industry is going for autonomous vehicles. How do we insert autonomous technologies into a motorsport series, which is human dependent? So motorsport is a sport, is mm-hmm. depending on the human, but if, you, if the whole industry is going to go autonomous, and there is no drivers needed anymore. How does it relate? How is going to be the future of motorsport if the industry is in 20 years, worst case scenario, is fully autonomous? And that's independent of what I think or what I do. Yeah. That's going to happen. So my job is to try to adapt that into a sport. How do you combine both? And that was the when we decided to create RoboRace, which is uh, the first ever autonomous racing series or racing series with autonomous technology and uh, the championship the first championship is next year with few teams few cars uh, autonomous just to be clear the, the, the fully autonomous technology on a race car is still far away from beating a professional driver okay uh, but it's getting better it's getting closer and then uh, we found i think the, a very good way of uh, adapting this technology into motorsport. So RoboRace is uh, nothing more than introducing or uh, adapting autonomous technology into a race car. And the way I decided to do it was, doesn't matter what we do, there's there's still gonna be human drivers and machine drivers in the road for the next 20 years or more. Doesn't matter if it's here or developing countries or everywhere there will be this combination of human and machine. And at the moment, human and machine combination, this uh, symbiotic driving uh, combine of both, it's actually uh, better than each of the parties alone. Mm-hmm. So a bit like, uh, let's say, a, a chess player that okay took a long time for Deep Blue to beat Kasparov back in the 90s. Uh, or AlphaGo to beat uh, Lee Sedol in the, mm-hmm. in the Go game. This will happen also, a machine beating a human driver at one point. But for the start of it, RoboRace will look like the, we have an autonomous car, mm-hmm. which the driver can drive. So in the beginning of the race, the first laps, the driver has full control of the car. And the car is learning from the driver. While the driver is racing, 
is that the, 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 the computer is scanning the track, is understanding the driver inputs, where he brakes, where he accelerates, which line he takes in the corner, and is learning with the driver. Wow. So it's a deep, deep learning algorithm that is learning as the driver goes by. And then on the pit stop, instead of changing components or changing wheels, the driver goes out. And then the car has to use what he learns from the human to finalize the race. It's a combination of, the, of these two topics, which I think can create a very exciting component. So you have the human there, the machine is learning from the human, but also the machine has a, a pure effect on the result, the end result, because if the machine spins or crashes out, also the, the, the team fails to complete the task or the race. So that's what we're going to do with four or five teams and uh, four or five events. I love your passion for this. It's infectious sitting here talking to you about this in terms of your level of enthusiasm. Where did your passion for the the technical side of the cars and the capability come from? Where did that start? I always love tech. Uh, I'm a bit of a geek, I would say. Uh, I always love sports. I do every sport, but I also love the technology behind it. So even go-karts, when I was 10 years old, I was preparing my engine when I was racing go-karts myself. So I always loved that. I, unfortunately, I, I didn't, I don't have an, uh, an engineering degree. I didn't finish uh, university because I was, I chose to be a professional racing driver, but that would have been my choice if I was not going to su- succeed as a racing driver, probably as a, probably as an engineer, uh, I have this passion. I love that. And, um, yeah. And then, uh, I'm just following through what I believe and what I think would be the future and how to improve my sport, the, the stuff that I love and uh, how to combine this new technology into this uh, world which is changing so quickly. Motorsport is going to go through a big change because of the technologies, but the analogy that I use is similar to the horse racing. In the beginning of the century, horse racing was a mass sport. Everybody rode horses. So horse racing was a natural thing. Who has the best horse? So horse racing was huge. Nowadays, you only ride a horse if you want to. In the future, it will be exactly the same with cars. You will only drive a car if you want to drive. So it's not that the motorsport will not exist in the future. You still want to see, even if the machine is quicker, you still want to see who's the best driver, mm. or who's the best chess player. And it's not because Deep Blue beat Kasparov that we only see Deep Blue playing, playing against Deep Blue in chess. You want to see who's the best human. So motorsport will continue, but will each time less, has a, 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 it's going to become a, a mass sport. And it's going to become a niche. So all the NASCAR categories, all the IndyCar categories, they already reduced the revenue from the peak, which was early 2000s. And that will never going to go up. Doesn't matter how good they do the event, that will go inherently, they will go down until it becomes a niche, which new fans, I'm not saying the people don't love cars anymore. I love cars. I have a nephew who loves cars, but will become more of a niche. And the, more, and the less people drive, the more they use Uber and they, the less they take driving license, which is not the case anymore with the millennials in city centers, the less this uh, faction for racing. And uh, so the demographics of racing will go down. So we have to adapt also to this new world. And I think with RoboRace also it creates a different uh, uh, public, um, the, the tech people, the video game, we can come up with. We have, what I told you is just the beginning. We have crazy ideas of um, implementing uh, augmented reality and virtual reality into the racing, for example, creating, creating a, a virtual traffic in a racetrack wow. uh, with augmented reality that the car has to go around the virtual traffic at the same time is doing a fast lap. 
I think there will be the cases of people driving raw cars and in, in, in circuits and uh, having the pleasure of controlling a machine. Mm-hmm. The same with, it's the same as almost with classic cars. You have already a new car. Why you like classic? You like classic because of the feeling, because of the, um, uh, the special touch that that car has or how it's handled. doesn't matter if the brake system of that car is better or worse. You like that specific feeling. So this will stay. People will still drive it. But the future of cars, even the cars, the supercars, it will be with uh, augmented sensor input that will help to take the limit of that car when you want to, or actually avoid crash when you actually lose control. So there has a safety safety component, uh, especially with autonomous cars or autonomous systems in that car, and also in a a way that uh, people will be able to uh, drive the car faster uh, with these systems that we want to be, uh, let's say, developing with RoboRace. So when you paint this incredible vision of the future, what do you see as the biggest challenges to fully realizing that future? So the, the, the biggest, um, I think the biggest challenges are finding a, a formula that works, that combines technical development, uh, entertainment, and overall cost. You need to have a balance between these three. If technical development is too high, then cost goes too high. You have not so many manufacturers that could join or push the series. Uh, if entertainment is not proportional to the technical development, manufacturers are not interested to develop their tech. So you have to keep these three balls in the air. You know, it's like you- Which one of those three balls is the hardest to keep in the air? Each one is uh, tricky in its own way. Entertainment uh, with the new forms of entertainment, how you grab the attention of a generation which has access to endless possibilities all time with social media, YouTube, and so on. Uh, Technical development in a way that we need to trace a route which we don't even know how it's going to look autonomous cars in five years. So how can you trace a a technical development route if not only uh, we don't know, the manufacturers, they don't know Mm. what they're going to do. Even the industry, I mean, we have now Google competing with GM on autonomous cars. I mean, the the industries are... uh, there is a huge intersection between the industries, so we don't even know who's going to prevail. It's going to be a Google car, an Apple car, a GM is going to, uh, Uber is going to produce a car. It's a bit of a, nobody knows how, where the industry is going. So technical development is very difficult to predict and to do. Entertainment is very difficult to do. Um, and while doing this too, keeping the cost low. So uh, you have um, sponsors that could pay uh, to be involved in this series in a in a good return for their investment. This is the, the, the tricky point. It's so interesting, isn't it? I wanted to ask you about uh, your work with the UN. You've become an environmental ambassador for the UN and you've said that air pollution is the single biggest environmental health risk of our time. Talk to us about how you got involved and what the Breathe Life campaign aims to achieve. Uh, so for me, it was an honor to be invited by the by UN to, to become a, a clean air advocate, a global ambassador for them, uh, and has everything to do with uh, what I'm doing. I'm pushing electric mobility, pushing efficiency of vehicles. A lot of people talk about global warming. Maybe not everybody, some presidents, they don't agree. <laughs> but the global warming is a fact. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, it's, it's going to be a threat for humanity, but it's such a long-term vision that people don't really have the, they don't feel it. But I'm from Sao Paulo, Brazil. I've been to India. I've been to Delhi. I've been to Beijing. And 
if you go there, if you're listening and you go there, you will understand what quality of bad quality of air can do to you. There is no way to hide. Mm. And uh, 7 million people die every year just from air pollution itself directly, plus all the healthcare costs that we're going to have in the future. At least, at least 10% of the population will have some kind of uh, lung problem in the future directly related or indirectly related to air pollution. Uh, because of echoes, because of uh, thermoelectric plants, coal plants, and many other stuff. But people don't talk a lot about that. But ha this has a much higher impact, not only on the quality of life of people, but also in the, let's say, on the cost for the for the governments. Mm -hmm. um, it's totally proportional to healthcare costs. Uh, if you make cities electric, they'll say, oh, okay, I don't spend fuel, I turn into electric. But if you put healthcare costs on top of it, it just creates a full, clear picture that you need to go electric right now, even if it's not more efficient because people say, ah, oh, it's not more efficient to produce the car. There's always this argument. doesn't matter. Uh, if you burn fossil fuels, if you create pollution where people live, mm -hmm. that's the worst case scenario. And that's the message that I want to put out, that I'm helping the UN to put out and uh, makes uh, uh, perfectly sense alignment of what I'm doing with in racing, which is the electric and autonomous. I love it. I mean, it would probably surprise a lot of people that someone who's been at the forefront of, you know, elite motorsports has become an advocate for low emission technology and clean air. And yet you hear everything you've shared with us today about your own journey and the way you've pivoted in response to watching the way that technology and society and the environment are changing and the expectations are shifting. And it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it, it's what I, I really believe. For me, it makes sense. Um, I'm not doing that um, uh, only to, uh, let's say, to, uh, to promote a, a, a cleaner future. What I believe is not, I don't think people make compromises. I mean, when you say, okay, stop using plastic bags or stop eating meat, people don't do that unless there is a viable alternative for them. Maybe some niche people do it because they believe that they want to be ethical, but most people, they don't. You don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. So if you create a technology, which on top of helping everything, it also has an impact on their pocket, makes everything better. This is a disruptive technology. Uh, it's about no compromises. It's better in every way you look. And that's why I like so much about uh, electric mobility and, uh, yeah, and autonomous uh, vehicles. This motorsport might be one of the few sports that actually I'm using my image to promote that, mm -hmm. but actually I'm using my time to develop the technology. It's not that I'm playing football and then I'm saying, okay, don't eat meat or don't use plastic bag. I'm actually doing something to produce a, 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 a bag which is cheaper and better and uh, you know more sustainable than plastic. And this is what I like about uh, electric motorsport. I wanted to take it back to your career for a moment, if I can. What's been the most challenging part of having an elite sporting career for the period of time that you have done? I think the risk, the, the, the cost of opportunity of choosing that. I'd made a lot of sacrifices in my whole life. And it, uh, to, I think every sportsman do. People don't realize uh, you see uh, somebody swimming at the Olympics, you don't see, I mean, to finish seventh or sixth, okay, you know Phelps that won 20 medals, mm -hmm. but all the other guys, they train as hard as Phelps. And the compromises that an elite sportman, they, they do for that for the job is, is a huge sacrifice. 
And uh, you only do that if you really love your sport. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really glad and I'm super lucky to have had a career so far that I was able to make a living out of what I like, create a purpose out of that and uh, work in this area. And can I ask, I know you've touched on pressure, but what else do you believe are sort of the core building blocks of high performance? For sure, uh, uh, how to deal with pressure, uh, discipline. It's very difficult, especially through the, when you're a teenager phase uh, that you have, I don't know, start to go out and parties and uh, all your friends are doing that and you're not. And so discipline is, a, is, a, is very important. I think intelligence not in the normal sense of intelligence of solving problems, but having an emotional intelligence combined with discipline to make sure that you understand what you're doing and what are the benefits of doing something specific. And I think family support as well, uh, stability in your life. I think that was super important for me. I always, my family always supported me. My mom thinks racing is dangerous until now. <laughs> Until now, until every now, time, until now, she doesn't go to the races, never. She's been like twice wow. in, uh, in 20 years. What she does, she records it. And then after she, she, she watches it. But family support also, I think this, everything combined, uh, yeah. I think it creates a um, great environment. I think not only for a sportsman in life, this is super important. And uh, like I said, I'm very lucky to have all these components uh, of my life aligned. But some, some people, they don't and they still succeed, so... Uh, it's super impressive. Someone that strikes me as being incredibly grounded and with an extraordinary deal of perspective about uh, your career and the role that you're playing in your industry. I wondered what, what was the best bit of advice that you were given over the course of your career that's really informed the perspective you've taken and what role did mentors play in your development? That, that's a very good point. I think in, in, in my sport career, uh, maybe the best advice was, like I just said, focus on your performance, not on the result. The result will be what your performance outcome will be. So don't think in advance about the possible negative outcomes. Focus on your performance. This will make you less, uh, with less anxiety, uh, will make you more focused, will make you understand where you need to develop. And in life, I think that the best advice uh, was from my father, which he always told me to think, always to think and to rationalize on fundamentals, not per analogy. Okay. Can you explain? Yeah. So uh, instead of seeing someone doing some stuff and just try to repeat it and do it better, step back and see why and question what's happening and think about the fundamentals of it and try to re rethink what is the best way of doing that procedure. Not repeat that procedure and make it a small increment, but sometimes rethink the whole procedure itself by the fundamentals of what needs to be achieved. And that for me was a super uh, interesting advice because it can be applied for anything. It can be applied for well, your personal life, for electric cars, for what you eat, basically question everything and go after the fundamentals of what that make that fact and then choose the best independent of what everybody else is doing. Just if you look at this, that will probably give you the possibly the best outcome. 
The other thing I was curious about is what do you do to stay on top of future trends, like in terms of where motorsport's going, where technology is shifting to? How do you keep your finger on the pulse? That's a, that's a tough question. I think this, what I just said, is part of it. So if you look at fundamentals, you understand where the industry will go because normally when you have a fundamental change, you have a different, you, you probably have a different cost or that industry will lead that way in any case, but also try to um, improve always not try to execute life as a robot. There is uh, ways, when I'm driving, uh, when I'm driving my car, the level I am now, I'm not improving anymore. I'm executing what I learned, but I can, and then I go to the gym and then I improve my aerobic capacity running 10 kilometers a day. Because if I have a better aerobic capacity, when I'm driving, I'm calmer, I'm, I'm more calm and I can have a better performance. But if I don't do the gym, I only drive, I stay on that level always. So there are many ways in life that you can actually improve your skills by doing something else. And I go to, I read an interesting book. There was a, a, a Greek philosopher that was also a politician. And uh, he says, if you only repeat what you do all the time, you're not, in, you don't, you're not improving a lot. Uh, you need to always improve. So he used to practice his speech in an open sea. So he would be clearer to people when he was in the closed space. Mm -hmm. So with the sounds of waves and people still understand him, would mean that people understand him much better when he was in a closed space. He had a problem with, when he was talking, he raised his shoulder. So he put a sword on the ceiling <laughs> that when he was talking and he raised his shoulder, that would pinch his shoulder for him to stop that. Not only practicing your day-to-day -day as a robot, trying to improve in different areas, in different ways. So I read a lot. I try to understand the trends of other industries and how that relates to my industry. Uh, and I try to, uh, to use a lot of my free time to improve in areas that I like, even if they're not totally related to what I do. And you mentioned a core part of your job now is execution. Uh, what do you do in terms of your pre-race routine? How have you optimized that sort of habit loop in order to be able to execute at your best whenever you get in a car? Do you do any visualization yes. or self-talk? So, for example, in Formula E, it's very limited amount of time you are driving on the track and testing between races is forbidden. So I, I had few flaws or few areas which I, could, I, I knew I could improve. Um, so I tried to repeat that mentally, having visualization of the, how would be a perfect lap. Uh, trying to remember where do I break in that specific corner? Is there a pothole? Is there a, 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 some bump that I see? There is any paint on the tarmac that gives me a reference? Try to remember all of that. And that improved my, uh, my, my performance because by consciously trying to think and trying to remember, I was more precise on doing each corner. Trying to improve when I'm driving, I try to um, uh, come back with some techniques um, consciously to understand what were, were my flaws in that specific race or normally where my flaws were and try to rationalize. So for example, uh, how I could make a corner better and more repetitive. I needed to find more references. You cannot think about this when you drive, you just drive. So my, my way of rationalizing it was taking it back and saying, how can I find more references? 
and uh, meant uh, and, and creating a mental picture of that specific corner where I would break, where there is a tree or where there is a sign that I need to break, or is there anywhere in the road there is a, a bump that I need to avoid and try to remember that over and over again. So when I'm back in that track, I know exactly where to go and I'm much more precise because then be, instead of just driving by instinct, I know exactly the reference that I need to follow. And uh, then, of course, you need to adapt depending on how the conditions of the track is and how the car evolves. But then going back to the simulator and doing mental exercises to improve that. And you could see, I could feel that I was getting a better driver by doing this. There's enormous mental precision from what I'm hearing you talk about in terms of that preparation process. For you to have an idea, so when you break at 300 kilometers per hour, yeah. that's um, roughly 100 meters per second. So every tenth of a second, so every blink of an eye is about 10 to 15 meters at that speed. And if you miss your braking point by 10 or 15 meters, you crash your car. That's the level of precision I'm talking about. I've been training for a long time (laughs) to do that, but it's a super, it's not only me. I'm talking about all professional drivers, IndyCar drivers, NASCAR drivers. We are talking about centimeters or inches or... um, uh, thousands of a seconds if if you are half a second off the pace you go from winning a race to finish far off the podium so you need to have to to operate in that specific window. have you been lucky enough to have a relatively injury-free career yes that's actually i was just saying uh, at lunch uh, yes i had a lot of i had a few ugly crashes but i never hurt myself I, I broke a lot of bones, but doing other sports, not motorsport. <laughs> last, last year, I broke my leg actually playing football and I had to race with a broken leg. I didn't tell anyone. How do you even do that? <laughs> I was doing this charity game and I broke the, the guy tackled me, broke my leg, uh, one of my bones, uh, the, the fibula. And then I, I didn't say anything to anyone because I knew they wouldn't allow me to race. I had some painkillers and then I raced and I actually did well, I finished. I did a double podium in the weekend, it was quite good. Actually it was Berlin, it was one week, exactly one week ago. Oh, sorry, one, one year ago from this week. And look, final question I wanted to ask you, I can't thank you enough for your time. You've been so generous in, in sharing with us today. Um, if you could leave our listeners with a call to action, what would you encourage them to do? About anything. I would say that uh, in the... In the current interesting era that we're living, uh, this uh, social media and fake news, I think what I can say is that uh, there was, a, there was a, a say by an American senator, I don't remember his name, but people are entitled to have their own opinions, but they are not entitled to have their own facts. Look at, your fa- look at the facts uh, and make a decision based on the facts. Well, Lucas, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you so much for joining us on Coffee Pods. It's been a fascinating conversation. I think it's incredible how you are pioneering an entirely new frontier of your industry. And as you said, you know, the technology and the projects you're working on is not specific just to motorsport in in the sense that it'll have a broader ripple effect on mobility at large for the way that uh, we, we drive, the way that we get ourselves around are the way that humans and technology intersect. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Also, thank you for your insights around high performance. I'm sure I won't be the only one. I'm sure many of our listeners will be avidly following the uh, E 
uh, Formula One now and most certainly Robo Races uh, Championships in 2019. So, Lucas, thank you so much. No, my, my really my pleasure. It's a pleasure for uh, being here and for everybody that is listening to us. Uh, thanks for the time and for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me. Thank <laughs> you.